we are definitely like discussing this even at hugging phase while we are building like these powerful technologies and you know the, there's a big responsibility to like when we try to open source some of these things is to like you know have we evaluated it em- enough or like you know have we re- read team model um have we thought about like what guardrails should we put in place while when we open source these models and um i would say that you know maybe i don't see that there's a existential risk with this uh these models but definitely there's like more real risk of like you know just like impacting real people one of them would be just like persuading people to like harm themselves but then there are examples of other models that can like even like these large models that are out in the open would generate really bad and harmful texts which would like persuade people to like go, like harm themselves or like you know tell them to like harm other people um also like you know with these models like becoming agents and like you know interacting with the browser they can like do things that can have physical consequences right? like right now you can connect it to it can work as a interface to any application if you can order a coffee you can also like order chemicals you can order like a lot of these different things which could be used like you know if there's a bad actor uh, could be used for building harmful products hey everyone and welcome to another episode of the podcast in today's episode my conversation is with Nazneen Rajani Nazneen is a research lead at Hugging Face a startup with a mission to democratize ai now before Hugging Face she worked at Salesforce Research where she led a team of researchers focused on building robust natural language generation systems based on large language models, or LLMs. Her expertise lies in training and evaluating LLMs, focusing on interoperability, robustness, factuality, and common sense reasoning. In this episode, expect to learn why open source AI might be the future, what GPT actually stands for, how text tokenization actually works, how long it will take to get to AGI, the challenge with building effective AI models, advice for young people getting to AI, and much more. Nazneen was a delight to speak to, where you really get a sense of her excitement and enthusiasm in what she's doing across the AI space, and no doubt she'll be a key contributor to its positive future and direction. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Nazneen Rajani. I wanted to quickly go into, maybe just let's tee it up a little bit for the audience and maybe open open up the conversation a little bit about the work that you're doing. And then maybe we can sort of go from there because I think it will really set the stage for the conversation about working at Hugging Face, uh, the work that you're doing with AI and everything in between. So maybe do you want to explain a little bit about uh, Hugging Face, what you do there, and maybe a bit about your background as well? Of course, yeah. Uh, So I'm a research lead at Hugging Face, and currently I'm working on a very exciting project, which is building the open source version of ChatGPT. Um, I'm sure everyone has heard about ChatGPT at this point. Um, And it's this model from OpenAI that is very good to talk to, converse with. Um, And the the thing is that it's not open source. That means that you can only access it via interface, uh, but you cannot modify it or control it or deploy it. 
it in other use cases. Um, and so what uh, what the community was actually looking for is like, you know, is there going to be an open source version? And that's how like Hugging Face kind of became like front and center, right? When ChatGPT was taking off is that, you know, everyone started looking up to us as to like, you know, um, is there going to be an open source version of uh, ChatGPT? Um, and so that's when like, you know, the we as researchers came in and like, okay, yes, let's, Let's build this, you know. And the thing is that uh, the reason there's like a big research component to it is because um, there are like it's not very uh, it's not very open knowledge or open AI has not been very open about how they build these models, the challenges associated with it, um, the finer grain details about it. So in itself, it's a research problem to figure out uh, how much data you need, what kind of data processing you need, uh, uh, how to what works with RLHF. Is that even like an important component? Um, and things like that, right? And so that's why there's this big research component to it. And that's what, what I and my team have been working on at Hugging Face. Are you guys trying to copy exactly in terms of what OpenAI's ChatGPT is actually doing? Or is it kind of different at the same time? What's the, what's the goal of this? Yes. So the goal is to, uh, first of all, like learn what makes ChatGPT so much better than something like GPT-3. Like, what does it take to go from GPT-3 to chat GPT? We do know there are like some, you know, some ingredients or some steps or that that have been taken from like they going from a foundation model like GPT-3 Bloom uh, to something that is more conversational, friendlier. Um, and we are more or less trying to replicate those, although there are like a lot of decisions that need to be taken at each step. Uh, an example would be like, you know, when we are doing alignment with uh, RLHF, which stands for reinforcement learning with human feedback, you generally ask, uh, collect human preferences on some dimensions. And the dimensions that uh, in OpenAI and Anthropic have been focusing on mainly is uh, truthfulness, uh, harmlessness, and helpfulness. And so asking people that uh, which response is uh, better in terms of these three dimensions. Um, and so those are like, are those the dimensions that we also want to like, you know, align our models to? Are there other dimensions to be looking at? What, so it basically goes into like, you know, almost like the model creators deciding what values do they want to distill in their model? And, you know, what do they want to align their models to? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's an interesting research project as well. And obviously it sounds like there's a underlying mission for Hugging Face to make this uh, transparent. It's trying to make this as open as possible, considering the irony that OpenAI are not necessarily open themselves on this. But at the same time, I think that Hugging Face exists to really provide um, an open sort of uh, platform and forum for communities to come in and, and build that. Can you maybe give a little bit of a backstory behind Hugging Face, especially for those who don't necessarily know what Hugging Face is. They've probably heard of, you know, you're still large AI companies, you know, your Googles, Microsoft OpenAI, NVIDIA, and a lot of projects as well, uh, you know, like Apache Spark and all those things. But maybe give a high level on, on what Hugging Face is and and what's what's the, the purpose behind um, their existence? 
Yeah, so Hugging Face is a startup. Uh, its mission is to democratize machine learning. Uh, so basically try to make that accessible to as many people as possible, um, to empower people to able to, to be able to train their own models. Uh, so we have a very huge hub of data sets, machine learning data sets and models. We have close to uh, 40,000 data sets, more than 200,000 models on the hub. Uh, we have an evaluate library uh, that could like evaluate the model on like more than 70 metrics. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, tools to help you deploy your machine learning model uh, as like, you know, for to share it with the public. Um, and the story behind this is that uh, it it's all started with the Transformers library. So the Transformers paper, which is sort of like, you know, the building blocks or the uh, horsepower behind all these uh, large language models today was a paper that was released by Google uh, back in 2017. Uh, and the implementation of that was in TensorFlow, uh, which a lot of people like prefer PyTorch instead of TensorFlow. And so what Hugging Face did is to like, just, um, you know, build that in PyTorch and make that more easily available to like, you know, look, be able to like run a the transformers model or anything in like a few lines of code um, and then very soon they started picking up other you know models from research papers and trying to like open source them implement them and make them easy and streamlined to be used um, and that started gaining popularity and little did people know that um, with the transformers paper and the transformers research everything's just gonna like start accelerating uh, research in the direction of large language models and so that's why that's basically made hugging face the de facto place to like go and build off of what other people have done so that you know they would just come here uh, download the transformers library and then came the data set library as well and be able to like you know build off of what was already done and then take that forward so who are the sort of contributors into hugging face you know I, I feel like it's more or less becoming more like this open community of people coming in and, and creating uh, models contributing data is that the intent where there's this sort of sense of community and trying to encourage people to contribute uh, whatever they're working on in that space into this community so that people can learn from each other. It's, it almost sounds like this sort of open source initiative, if you will. Is that is that sort of accurate? Yes, that is accurate. And I, I think you're also kind of alluding towards this incentive structure. Like, you know, what is it? what is incentivizing people to come and contribute towards open source data sets and models. Um, and one of the biggest factors driving this was that uh, when you try to like submit papers to conferences to get them published, they generally uh, ask you that, you know, have, are you planning to open source this? Like, are your results reproducible? Can other people look at these? And so like mo most of the time people used to like put them on GitHub and like, you know, put a link to it. Uh, but people eventually started figuring out that it makes it, you know, more usable and they get a lot more popular and a lot more usage if they actually put them on hugging face because, because of this whole streamlined process. And so obviously like, you know, when you build something and when you release something, you want more usage. Um, and so it was just easier to share it on hugging face platform as opposed to like just putting it on an open source repo and then describing how to use that. So like, you know, it just became like this one-stop shop for all the machine learning needs. It reminds me, I mean, the analogy that I immediately think of when you say that is like product hunt. It's like putting, you know, people have their own, you know, whatever the latest, greatest thing is, and they're going to this one-stop shop platform, and then, you know, it just gets proliferated into the community. And people, because people know about Hugging Face, they all go to this community, everyone knows that there's 
uh, legitimacy and uh, authority around hugging phase two. So it's kind of cool that you have sort of these network effects. It's always nice to sort of uh, you know see what that looks like. How do you when you when you started working hugging face? What was the culture like? You know, what is the culture now like? You know, what are they? What are you incentivized to do? You know, you know what's your sort of day to day like? You mentioned research is a big part of your role there. When you start at Hugging Face, do you choose the projects you work on? Um, you, do you have free reign on what's available? Um, how do you figure out what the priorities are when it comes from sort of the leadership level towards you know, to, towards you know, everyone else working in the company? Yeah, so the culture is very different from where I was before. I was at Salesforce Research before, which was a big corporate giant. Um, they And I think the main difference was like the lack of processes. Um, so it's like very fast moving culture. You're at hugging phase. Uh, there is there's no, no process or no documentation around like how to do something or, you know, how to say, like, get a laptop to work on you go to apple.com and order it yourself. <laughs> and so like, you know, there's like a lot of these uh, smaller things which initially it was a big culture shock to me just coming from a bigger corporate thing where there's just so many security checks and so many processes around like you know how who gets a, a basic uh, you know authenticated to what sort of groups and what sort of teams and so on and like you know how what what is provision for what account um there's just like so many uh processes and checks and bounds and these uh, com- uh, in bigger companies but with hugging face it was much more like streamlined faster and smoother um there's also like you know a bias for action uh, so they always appreciate action compared to inaction even if it leads to something that could be like a bad outcome but at least like you know you did not just sit there waiting for someone to do it for you right like it's it's always good to like you know do it yourself um so that was one thing in terms of projects uh yes there's like at least in the science team and the research team which is what i'm part of um there is a like a little bit of freedom around like what you work on it should all tie into this mission of like you know making ml accessible and democratizing and you know open source is obviously the central focus for us um right now i think recently we have all been like trying to like you know figure out like like the needs of the community are uh, trying to meet them and so basically that is around like you know understanding what this large language model like chat gpd and gpd4 are uh, and can we get access to this or can we get knowledge around like how to build these things right and uh evaluating them obviously there's a lot of responsibility with doing such a big task as to like um are we going to open source this giant model this very powerful language model it could get into hands of bad actors and things like that so thinking about these things in itself is like a big you know responsibility i want to get into that sort of philosophical uh, discussion later on because i think it's really important to have also you mentioned about the history of the Transformer Library and you know that paper by Gull. Again, another important thing that I want to talk about. But at least for now, when, you, when you're sort of within the confines of Hugging Face and you're working there with your coworkers and your colleagues, and obviously you have that community interface as well, you're, you're engaging with the community on a, on, a, on a very frequent basis. What is the, um, you know, what's the dynamics like when you're, working with, on these types of projects you know is there is a very free flowing when you talk with your uh, your colleagues on sort of things and features to build in um or is it more so very processed wise like salesforce where you know there's a product roadmap and then you have to figure out exactly how to get there or is it, is it very different 
Oh, it's very, very different. It's very open-ended, very, uh, you know, uh, a sync uh, because we are all distributed across many time zones. Uh, so we all work from different time zones, very decentralized. Um, my boss, like Thomas Wolf, he's one of the co-founders. He also does coding, also figure, you know, basically debugs with us and everything. So it's very much like, you know, uh, kind of taking your own initiative and doing things yourself as opposed to like relying on processes or figuring out like, you know, oh, should I like wait for this thing to get completed? Is this okay to ask? Like it's, you know, you, everyone is empowered to like go ask the CEO or like, you know, the legal team on like, you know, hey, like, you know, can you get me this document or, you know, for like whatever thing you need, right? And so um, it's very flat in that thing. Very cool. Let's quickly talk about sort of your journey a little bit because I think that's really it's exciting for me to learn a bit about your story as well and sort of how people um, that I've met in the past have come into the AI space everyone has their own different stories what's yours maybe let's sort of quickly you know go back there but go back in time what sort of got you interested in AI and and how did you uh, you know move from one company to the other into Salesforce and now Hugging Face what was that sort of that journey like for you? Yeah, so actually my journey started way back when I was like sixth or seventh grade. Um, and my father had a big hand in it. He used to always tell me about stories about, you know, artificial intelligence and how it is different from software that we have, you know, this was two de- two decades ago, right? Um, and so he actually used to tell me about this and he's like, Oh, you might want to like look into that because that's gonna be big in a decade or so. Um, and so I I was like, okay, sure. And Basically, I just followed the pathway that he sort of like, you know, showed me. Um, And then when I was uh, in my undergrad back in India, uh, it was like I was in my uh, junior year. I actually wrote my first paper at that time, which was like, you know, building this very small neural network of like two layers to solve the tic-tac-toe game, which is this, you know, three by three, but it could like generalize to N by N. Um, And I I just like wrote this very simple algorithm, which could like, you know, always make sure that the computer wins or it ends in a draw, which is like a neural network. Um, And so, and it could like generalize to any N by N uh, matrix. Um, And so that kind of was like very fascinating how like the simple thing could, you know, be able to almost like emulate a a human being trying to play a game and try to like, you know, game them in different ways uh, by just being this like a very simple two-player game. Um, and so that was like very motivating. I took this class back in like my uh, senior uh, and my junior year like, on neural networks and also in artificial intelligence. Um, and those two were like, you know, sort of the building blocks behind that. Uh, then I came for my uh, graduate school at UT Austin um, back in 2012. Um, that I, I first did my master's and then I continued doing my PhD starting 2014. Um, and I took the natural language processing class as part of my, uh, uh, as part of my coursework. Uh, and over there, I started like, you know, learning about like language and linguistic structures in language and how we can like, you know, train these models to be able to like form these trees and like, you know, understand like, you know, the intention behind what the speaker is saying or like what the, what the intention the speaker is trying to communicate. Um, and so these things were like really very exciting to me. And I, I was working on them way before Transformers came out. And then, so then when I graduated, this is right when like both the bird model, Transformers and all these were released. Um, and I, at that, at that time I joined Salesforce Research because that was like, you know, uh, 
basically MetaMind became part of Salesforce Research and MetaMind was focused very much on NLP. Um, and so that gave me an opportunity to work on explainable AI. And that was also what my PhD dissertation was on, is trying to understand what these neural networks and why they are predicting what they are predicting. Um, and so I started off by taking this uh, GPT-2 model at that time and making it like generate explanations for a certain input. So you, you would ask it things like, you know, uh, what would happen if I push a book off the table and then it would generate reasoning like, you know, oh, it would fall because of gravity and like that. So like it was trying to like get the sense of how the world works just by reading text. And that was like very amazing because then I could use this and give it to another downstream classifier that could use that reasoning and perform much better on the task that it was doing. Um, and that that was like, you know, something that kind of gave me a like, like, you know, a really big motivation to go in this direction of trying to like really understand what these large language models are learning. Was it, uh, I mean, for me, I, I'm exploring AI myself, right? It's a bit of a rabbit hole and you definitely learn a lot, especially with so many technologies, frameworks, uh, models coming through. Was it, and you mentioned obviously that little story of yours where you were able to understand and, and sort of get excited about that. What do you, how do you, what do you speak to sort of the current generation where there's a lot of models that are already pre-created for you? They're everything, they're sort of there to be used and that's great because it's democratized ai which is fantastic but at the same time there's a lot of people coming to this space not knowing the fundamentals so can you sort of maybe speak to how important is it to actually understand the basics and the foundations of of, of learning about ai because for many people they don't have the time they just don't have maybe the resources and they only see what's been given to them is it still important to, to understand the foundations? Yeah, it's extremely important to understand the foundations and I can't emphasize that enough. And like, just to give you an example for like, you know, when earlier, when I used to tell someone that I'm doing uh, my PhD in computer science, uh, you know, focusing on AI, they would more be like, the jokes would be like, hey, can you fix my computer? Can you fix my internet, right? Uh, and so, but the thing is that, you know, people fail to understand that, you know, a lot of computer science is just math. It's like we are doing like, you know, programming or, you know, all these things are just tools to get to like what your goal is. Um, so, you know, you could like, you know, you could may or may not be very good at programming or software engineering for that matter. Um, but you could like, you know, if you had like a very strong math and statistics foundation, you could actually be a very good AI researcher, even without being good at programming. And so that is kind of like highlighting the importance of like, you know, the foundation of how backpropagation work, transformers work. And like, you know, it's very, it would be very hard to like, you know, be able to like, you know, survive long term. And like, you know, and like you said, it is a rabbit hole for sure, right? And so like being able to like learn and like, you know, be on that journey for a very long time of learning more about AI without knowing like sort of these building blocks of like, you know, what goes into say backpropagation? How does the chain rule work? How does, how do, what is transformers? What are like the equations governing that and so on. So um, yeah, I would, I would say that those are like extremely important. When you were in India studying AI, I know that in Australia, in the US, maybe I would say 10 years ago, I remember studying um, some basic AI courses. This was just you know one, two layer, three layer uh, neural networks and using sort of CNNs. 
and con- that which is convolution uh, convolutional neural networks uh, for those who aren't uh, who, who don't know what that is but i know that obviously the, the the space has completely changed and really flipped on its head um over the past 10 years what was it like in india was there a was there interest in ai or was it still traditional in sort of going through the the pace of uh, traditional engineering, traditional computer science. What was the interest and the spark for AI in at least in India at that time? Yeah, so this was like back in 2011, 12. So like over 10 years ago, uh, when I was uh, in doing my undergrad. Um, and back then, I would say so the the both both the courses on artificial intelligence, which for which we use the textbook by Peter Norvig and Stuart Russell, which is a very standard one over here as well. Um, and the other one on intro to neural network, uh, both of these were elective courses. So they were optional and they were not something that, you know, and most people wouldn't take it was like a very small class. So I would say like, you know, even though there was uh, awareness for AI and like, you know, there were maybe people using, it was mainly very rule-based and using like, you know, very simple classifiers and like, you know, uh, even like very simple, um, heuristic algorithms which are like mostly rule-based learning um not even using much data to like find patterns in them um but i think it was only in 2012 or 2013 when this whole ImageNet moment happened and the AlexNet came out and things started taking off since then so i would say like um yeah back in india it like things were slow but now i know that they are picking up very quickly and you know things are moving very fast over there as well Let's quickly go into maybe some of the the interest that you have uh, within the space of AI. I think it's pertinent to understand a little bit about what you're in, what you're working on right now, and especially on on sort of moral creation. Um, I think creation, model understanding, and and making sure the models itself are robust is incredibly important. Can you just give a high level first of all about what is an AI model? Um, you know, what's the purpose of an AI model and, and what sort of goes into that? Yeah, so an AI model, you can think of it as just a very complex function. Um, it takes in inputs and generates outputs. So the inputs and outputs could be anything. Um, and the function is just like, you know, manipulating those inputs and then producing the output based on them. Um, but on much higher level, that was more formal definition, but on a higher level, what it's trying to do is that find patterns in data. So, you know, you give it uh, some amount of data and then it looks at patterns or tries to learn representation of the patterns. And then when you give it new data, it uses what it learned from the past patterns and like the things that it picked up to sort of like just extrapolate and make predictions on that. Um, so that is what, you know, at a very high level, what uh, AI model is. So can you give an example? So it would be like, so for example, text, for example, how, how would, uh, can you give an example of a text-based uh, AI model? You, obviously there are the, you know, everyone knows about LLMs now. Uh, so what's a, how do you sort of, whatever you just explained, how do you, how does that get applied to sort of these text-based models that everyone knows about? 
Yeah, so I think the very simple example would be like a sentiment classifier. Uh, for example, for movies, like you could give it input on like movie reviews uh, and then ask it to predict what the sentiment is. Like, is it a positive, negative, or it could even be more like a continuous scale, like, you know, predict a score based from like, you know, zero to 10 on what rating the movie should get. Um, and so that is, those are the outputs expected. The input is obviously the reviews. Uh, and so when you train this model, uh, it's what all it's trying to do is find patterns that makes something a positive thing or gives it a score of say eight or gives it a score of two for example and so it tries to find like are there specific words or sentiments that are there in this input that is leading to that particular output and so trying to like you know like you know tune its weights in the sense that you know figure out the right set of like you know it's like think of them as knobs like you know the right set of the how much you need to turn the knob and the right setting that would lead like given this all this training data would lead to exactly the labels that you provided that with right and so that's what it's trying to fit the function to is to like say that okay now like my function fits almost perfectly on the data that I was given which means that now that I get a new data point which I have not seen before I can use this function but and like say that oh does it fall on this side or that side like a very simplified like a linear function and then just make that prediction on like you know just based on like what it has seen in the past so does that mean that if if you're trying to massage the data in order to fit the function and obviously there's linear and there's non-linear and linear and non-linear but in any case the the value the quality of the data itself has to be good or doesn't it have to be good? Because I'd like to understand a bit, a bit more about what goes into the model itself, and does that predict the output of the the quality output of of that model if you have bad inputs, or can it be that even if you have bad inputs, you still can produce a reasonable result? Because I want to understand a bit about the model creation phase, and especially about constructing that model from valid input and from both that's input that's been clean or unclean you know can you sort of speak to the quality of the input data yeah so i think for that we would have to like go more into the types of learning so there are like there's something called i think so far i've just been talking about the supervised learning wherein like you are given some data and you have labels right and so assuming that the labels are really good like I mean they are like good quality data so that whenever the sentiment is actually positive the label actually does like you know uh describe that it to be positive and when it's negative it describes it to negative but you can imagine scenarios when it's like noisy data and like not all the labels are correct but you still expect the model to perform like robustly enough to be uh, you know to predict the right reasonable output um that would be supervised learning and then there would be something which is the self-supervised learning which is what like a lot of these models are trained today is that you just give it a lot of text and then it learns on its own uh, like by but a lot more data as to like it teaches itself to like you know what the task is or what it, what are we trying to do and so that is how like when you give like a few short examples of something and then you know give another example and then it now tries to predict like you know what the new label should be so this is kind of like you know so in the self-supervised learning the features are decided by the model like you know the model decides like what are the feature in the supervised learning case like which if you're using a neural network you're kind of giving it the, uh, the outputs and so it also knows like what features are important in that case like the look and looking at the labels or like trying to figure out which uh, words are related to what label and so on. Um, so I think these are like the two scenarios. And so on both the cases, the data quality would definitely affect like, you know, your training and finally also affect your downstream uh, model performance. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I think for the most part, you know, the the unsupervised learning or the self-supervised learning is the one where you mentioned about that the data in its in and of itself, you're training on that data. It's trying to learn, self-learn from that and be able to produce these outputs and, and sort of continue to have that feedback loop um, and, and try to continue to enhance the output of its data. What about robustness? And when I speak to robustness, you know, it's it's I'm really referring to the uh, the extremities of where you can actually push the model, the the sort of the edge conditions, the boundary conditions. Um, is there some value into assessing the quality uh, and the robustness of a model, and how do you actually even um, make sure that the the model is robust in the first place? Yeah, so I think what you are referring to is called stress testing, is that like trying to like give it the most adversarial example or the most edge cases and see if the model can handle those well or no. Um, so yeah, those are definitely very important, especially now that the models are getting so much better and almost at human performance and many of these tasks. Um, the way, uh, another way to like look at robustness is to just look at the worst case accuracy. So basically look at how the model is performing on the data slice that is probably not very dominant during training or look at like, you know, as opposed to looking at the overall aggregate performance of the model, look at how the model performs on a certain data slice. I think just to give you an example, very simple example, suppose that you train the sentiment classifier on movie reviews from IMDb and they have, suppose like the average length of movie reviews is 200 words. And now you want to like, you know, see if you just gave it a movie review that was 20 words long, that's it. Is the model able to handle that? So that because the model has not seen very short reviews, is it able to like, you know, is it robust enough to handle those kind of things? Because of like, you know, this is this could be a slice of data, a data slice that just looks at how does the model perform on short reviews, right? Uh, compared to like, you know, on, on average, most of the data falls around say 200 words, but there might be some data that doesn't that fall like much shorter than that um so that would be one way of assessing there could be various ways of slicing data uh, it could be like may, maybe like ethically inspired like looking at particular demographics of data slices or it could be uh you know how does the model perform on some categories that are not very dominant in training like for example if you're looking at sentiment of a movie which has um you know, maybe like a non uh, non Hollywood movie, or you know, some some examples of like movies that are not in English and things like that. So uh, those would tell you like, oh, is the model robust to these? And if and what is the performance of the model on those? And so the robustness would actually be the worst case accuracy. Like you know, so if it, it on average it performs ninety percent, but on some data slides it performs only seventy five percent, then that is what how how good it is. Yeah, right. And and so for if in order to to create those stressors on the model, what do you actually need to to extend the robustness to enhance the robustness? Is it just literally more data and 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 continue to training and once you get some sort of convergence uh towards this model that you're trying to fit um or is it something else? Yeah, so a lot of it is related to data. So I think people have like looked at this uh, idea of doing like, you know, data augmentation using weak supervision or just like, you know, extending data sets and seeing uh, can that help with, uh, you know, alleviating this problem. So that is like one of the most easiest low hanging solution for that. Uh, obviously, like using a uh, 
like you know a better model is also the other solution is that you know you probably don't need a very big model for most a lot of these use cases so like you know looking at smaller model like uh, over parameterization is actually a big problem with like robustness right um and so using like you know a model with much lesser parameters can also be helpful like training it longer on the data and like you know being able to like learn like you know something like obviously adding like things like uh uh what, what was i gonna say uh, uh the the to overcome the problem of overfitting um, and so regularization yeah that's what I was looking at um, so I think those things all help with uh, with this problem of robustness and like trying to make models robust what about scaling models and I want to speak to sort of that notion of like well okay well how more how big can a model get and and once it gets to a certain size do certain properties start to come through um, is sort of these emergent properties. Have you seen this in experimentation? Have you seen this in your own uh, in your own work? Because it sounds like with, especially with not just the training part, but the generative side of it as well as it starts to understand itself is that it starts to develop intrinsic properties about, and we've seen examples of this in the media. We've seen um, ChatGPT and, and many other LLMs produce answers and, and try to do things that weren't necessarily caught at the beginning or, or, or even anticipated. How do you, how do you um, speak to that when and, and exactly, and maybe you can explain exactly what's happening. Why is it that perhaps when these models scale to a certain size, uh, funky things start to happen? Yeah, so I think this emerging capabilities, it's an interesting topic because I think when you actually look at um, like smaller size model, and we have seen this um, ourselves, is that, you know, yeah, okay, they don't perform certain, like, you know, very well on some of these tasks, especially the ones that require like math reasoning or common sense reasoning and so on. Um, and as you scale up, they, you know, just by like, you know, getting more parameters and like looking at more data, they're able to like gain a lot, like you know, some of these skills and do better on them. For example, I think examples of emerging properties is this in-context learning, right? Just giving a few examples and then being able to generalize uh, to more examples on a completely novel task is, uh, you know, something that happens by scaling models up. Um, and so, yeah, this is definitely that the other example is chain of thought reasoning. Um, and so give like asking the model to think step by step this doesn't usually work with a smaller model like say gpt2 but you see that you know it works reasonably well with these bigger models um and so i would say like yeah i think there are definitely like we see these but a recent paper from stanford actually is like uh, said that you know the reason for this is because we are not uh looking at the right metrics for evaluating these uh, how we evaluate these models on these tasks and so it might seem to be like you know emerging but it's just because we're not evaluating properly so that's i would say there's still like not a lot of like confirmation on like and there's like almost two camps of people whether like you know is it actually emerging or is it something that we need to look more into because i think the the pace at which the uh, this technology and the uh, research is moving is like you know it's very every every day is like a new thing right um and so so far this is kind of what it looks like but i do say i do see that definitely like with scale and data there are different like the model capabilities do become better um uh, i don't know if we should like term them as emerging capabilities or like you know are these something that never existed in smaller scales uh versus like you know now they are like really good and like you know just came about when never existed or versus they were just not like we are not looking at the right the way of evaluating these smaller models versus like the ones that we are doing right now with the bigger ones. 
So I wanted to just maybe go into the notion we spoke about transformers. We spoke about uh, these large language models. Maybe just as a um, high level for people who don't understand, they've heard of GPT, but they probably don't understand what the GPT stands for. Um, can we sort of go into pre-trained transformers these and understand a little bit about what, what are they and and how are they different from the traditional way of training these uh, these AI models? Yeah, so I can talk about, uh, you know, how pre-training happens and GPT stands for generative pre-training, um, how they're trained. So in this, like we, uh, you know, the basically the big thing is that it's trained on a large amount of text, a large body of text. And the objective for the model is to just predict the next token. So token is, you can imagine them to be words, but they are generally like smaller than words, like so they're sub-words. Um, so, so, so the model, what it does is like for every sequence of word it assign it learns to assign a probability over the options of the potential next word um, and so by doing so all it is doing is that it's trying to acquire some sort of an internal representation of the language uh, so think about it like you know if i tell you that this is a and then what is the ni- li- next likely word based on a lot of like english text that you have seen in your life what is the most likely word to do uh, next word and so uh, and how do you complete that prefix and so that is kind of like how these models are trained and and after this process of like just reading the like you know, trying to predict the next token over and over again for lots of text, uh, after this process is done, the model is very capable of generating text and providing natural continuation of a given text prefix. But it may not be very good at communicating. Like you know, so when it's prompted with a question, it might give it an answer or it might generate a series of additional questions or it might say that you know this is an important question that was asked but you know it might also like because it is just like trying to predict the next token it may or may not generate something that is always factual um so also like you know just to give a comparison of the amount of data that these models are trained on because like i said that's kind of like the the biggest input that goes into like training these model uh so for if a human reads like thirty thousand words an hour um that would be like and if you read for three hours a day that would be like a total of ninety thousand. and by the way thirty thousand words an hour is super fast like if you're a very fast reader um and and then if you read you know every day for three hours a day in your entire lifetime you would have read seven billion words um and so the models today like a model like chat gpt or gpt3 and these models are trained on the uh in the order of trillions of tokens so just like you know 7 billion versus like say 1.5 trillion for example right um so that's like a big 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 difference like you know it's all like orders of magnitude different um so just to like you know give a sense of like how much data how much text it requires them to get a sense of like learn what language is and like you know understand what is the likely next word um so just to like put that into perspective a little bit can you elaborate on the tokenization process? Uh, I know there's some there's a lot of content and information on sort of the the creation process, the training process of these models, and a lot of the jargon comes or circulates around sort of tokens and tokenization. What is a token? How does it work? And what does it represent? 
Yes. So uh, when you feed uh, the input to the model, you're supposed to like chunk it so that it knows that, you know, oh, what is sort of like this uh, simplest, like, you know, what is the atom, like the most simplest piece, right? Um, and for most cases, you would just, you know, chunk it on a white space. And that could be, a, so that would be a word and the word could be a token. The disadvantage of having that is that, you know, suppose that you had just like so many words in training, you come across a new word, uh, a new word, and you kind of like, you don't know what, how to like handle that because you've never seen that during training. And to avoid this problem of this out of vocabulary problem, what people tend to do is that they they chunk the token at like much smaller pieces of like so it's called a subword so that you know when you actually look at it so something like running would be like for example like two or three subwords or two or three tokens right um so it like you know chunks it into smaller pieces that are more frequently uh that are more likely to occur and then put them as a vocabulary token so that you know when you are when in the future you see some new word you know like when you chunk it up you know that okay you have probably seen like you know seen that before so that it's not that doesn't have this problem of out of vocabulary and that's the thing like you know why we, why we need to tokenize and why we need to tokenize at more like a subword level so with the with, with sort of just gpts in general though you know obviously there are many applications of ai there's image classification there's video there's music there's audio there's text as well with gpt you know a lot of this got kicked off when that 2017 paper from Google got published on, I think it's all the, all the attention you need or something along those lines. And so attention is all you need, I believe. And I think that that sort of kicked off this really amazing um, evolution in this space. But was that it? Like, was that the, the inflection point that we needed for something like this to happen? I'm trying to understand if there's I don't know, maybe some other alternative to GPTs that could be uh, as performant as something like this, or was everything sort of residing and, and sort of sourced from that, that one paper? Yeah, so I would say I think that it was like, you know, def it was gradual almost like, you know, first we had like people were looking at RNNs and then LSTMs and I'm talking mainly about text and then like the transformers came in and they basically saw like, you know, this overcame this problem of like the long text dependency, which is, you know, it was very like, you know, you could have this long range dependency without having to like, like have like have like a quadratic or like a very complex uh, 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 computation. And so you could do that much faster at a much for higher level, higher scale um, and be able to like look at like a lot of words at the same time um, and so that is basically the problem that transformers solved but uh, also like a lot of these things like you know started working mainly because of like you probably heard of the hardware lottery right um, so which says that you know a lot of these algorithms and you know this ideas around uh, neural networks and you know these uh, LSTMs are and existed like decades ago uh, way before the transformers came out but the reason that you know this new innovation and this acceleration and research on these topics like you know picked up because like we had you know the hardware to actually run these computations at this level at this scale um and that's kind of like saying that okay like is that like you know is that is, you know the transform paper is definitely like crucial but then also like you know having the hardware and like you know the the, the means to like run these and do these experiments is also very important yeah i think that's that's really key, and I think we've, that's been a missing point from the conversation. Is really the the foundation, the infrastructure, the, the 
the entire hardware foundation to do this is now we have so much capability and so much power at our disposal and computation power that is that we can actually run these models everything that was previously known to be theoretical and just on paper is now well we can actually test this and experiment it out and this has also been you know led by the massive incumbents and your googles and your nvidias which is which is really cool to see let's quickly talk about maybe just now from a general standpoint ai and sort of why tools like ChatGPT are so useful and and not you know not just being used as a toy per se you know what what are you what are you seeing in your in your network what are you seeing in on your side that says that ChatGPT is something more than just a you know a novelty thing right now what could it be um, sort of in the near future um, I would say that I think it has a lot of potential for uh, disruptive changes in a lot of these do- and a lot of domains that, you know, we have technology and software. Uh, one example is education. Uh, I think every day we are seeing like, you know, uh, I mean, obviously there are like, you know, examples of, you know, students writing essays from ChatGPT, but then also like, you know, you people using ChatGPT as a tutor. And uh, just, just this morning, I read that, you know, someone actually like was on Reddit was that, you know, someone using ChatGPT for a period of like last so many months months as a python tutor and every day they come back and they're like okay like teach me this uh and like it will tell you like next steps and then you know what like it basically created a plan for them and it, that sounds like amazing that's like you know a real application of chat gpd about like you know tutor tutoring people helping them out assisting them uh, the other thing is that a coding assistant uh that is something that i use all the time as well uh it's hard to like imagine coding without a co-pilot or you know like you know some like something like chat gpd where you can just throw in an error and say like debug this so, you know like you could go to stack overflow but also like i've seen a lot of people started using chat gpd now for like these uh you know trying to figure out what's wrong with their uh with their code obviously like you know a lot of people also started putting like proprietary code which you know <laughs> which people are from samsung and all figured out so i wouldn't recommend that but then uh i would i'm just like you know saying that a co- you know copilot is good using it as a coding assistant is a good thing uh obviously like content creation writing you know it has accelerated a lot of like you know content creation for maybe like videos images um even like new posts and like you know new blogs and so on which and also like reviewing blogs reviewing documents people have started using it as a tool to review their papers um you know also in the legal use cases that you know uh Yes, assisting paralegals and all like, you know, summarizing these like huge amounts of contracts and documents and trying to like, you know, just make sense of like, you know, very big, very, uh, you know, sort of jargony documents that you want to like ask them, ask the model questions about like, hey, when did this happen? Or what was the action that I needed to take from this thing and so on? Um, I think there's a lot of these use cases that we can see that are very real like applications of chat GPT beyond just an RLD. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's definitely, I mean, even ChatGPT in and of itself, and now with Bard and a few other um, alternatives out there, are really seeing the value of what they're doing. And you mentioned the co-pilot notion, right? And my my take on this is that we've had sort of this autopilot era where they've been sort of detect. There's you know, we've used AI to help us 
sort of streamline our work with no intervention from us. You know, we'll you know we'll say okay, it detects an image, it's able to capture and identify things quite easily. But now the copilot error is coming in, where we're now using AI as a tool to supplement us, and we're working with AI uh, together to write code, to to write documents, to to really streamline our lives. So I think there's some some value there. But I also feel like there's dangers as well, right? There's a lot of people now thinking about, should we slow down AI? Should we uh, pause AI research? What are your thoughts about that? And I know at Hugging Face, you know, there's, there's this sentiment that we've got to continue to innovate and really push the boundaries on, on what this could potentially look like. But has there been any conversations maybe within the walls of Hugging Face or maybe your own personal thoughts about what the future of AI look like from, you know, from both a positive and, and negative standpoint? For sure. I think like, you know, uh, although like, you know, all these amazing um, the, uh, things that we get out of like, you know, productive uh, uh, effects of ChatGPT and these LLMs, on the other side, we also have like, you know, very, uh, you know, real danger that comes with this, right? And I think the most common ones are like deep fakes or, you know, misinformation or disinformation, uh, even like things like data privacy and, you know, uh, consent on like, you know, the consent on the data, uh, cybersecurity risk, uh, copyright issues or, you know, IP issues, um, and also just disparate impact. Like uh, there was like, you know, with watermarking, for example, uh, it seems to work well, but then, you know, if a native speaker is writing, like, you know, the detective would actually say it was generated by ChatGPT or GPT-4, uh, the native speaker English versus someone who is fluent in English. And so, uh, again, like you can see like disparate effects of even the watermarking or like the detector um, on marginalized groups, right? Uh, so I would say, yes, we are definitely like discussing this even at Hugging Face while we are building like these powerful technologies. And, you know, the, there's a big responsibility to like when we try to open source some of these things is to like, you know, have we evaluated it enough or like, you know, have we re- read team model um have we thought about like what guardrails should we put in place while when we open source these models and um i would say that you know maybe i don't see that there's an existential risk with this uh these models but definitely there's like more real risk of like you know just like impacting real people and like you know when they could be like so i can give like many examples one of them would be just like persuading people to like harm themselves and i've like seen this uh although like you know chat gpt and like gpt4 now are very good at like you know kind of being evasive and not trying to like you know you know when you try to red team it or adversarially prompt it uh but then there are examples of other models that can like even like these large models that are out in the open would generate really bad and harmful texts which would like persuaded people to like go, like harm themselves or like you know tell them to like harm other people um also like you know with these models like becoming agents and like you know interacting with the browser they can like do things that can have physical consequences right like right now you can connect it to it can work as an interface to any application if you can order a coffee you can also like order chemicals you can order like a lot of these different things which could be used like you know if there's a bad actor uh could be used for like a lot of uh, harmful uh, like building harmful products do you think there's there's a reason or there's a an argument to have some sort of regulation in place i know this is still an ongoing discussion even at the highest levels, about whether this needs to be regulated, there, there needs to be some sort of government body in place to to think about the ramifications of this and what sort of policies need to be enacted 
um, you know, what, what do you think about having some sort of like over, over sort of body overseeing um, AI development? Yes, so I I think there is definitely a need for a regulatory framework, um, and I think the the first step is to basically involve all the stakeholders. So whatever is if it's like a body or organization or the government, uh, I think the you know they should involve all the stake stakeholders. That could be like you know not just the developers or like the people who already own these powerful system, but also people who whose data is being used or like people who's gonna be you know uh, for whom the judgments is going to be used so like if you know if like, the simple example is like this credit approval systems right and we have seen like disparate impact of that uh, where like ai was used to like you know use for credit approval um and it could you know basically have disparate impact on marginalized groups um and so like you know definitely there's a need but there's also this problem of um you know almost like you know you're kind of trying to chase this target, which is this large language model capability and design a regulatory framework for what the capabilities look like today. And that's just a snapshot, right? Uh, and by the time you have a framework in place, a best practices, you know, risk analysis, auditing, all these like uh, different things. And then when you actually like, by the time you release those, the pay, because of the pace at which things are moving right now, probably the like, you know, the capabilities of these models are way more ahead and look very different from what they are today, maybe like six months down the line or one year down the line when we do actually have a framework in place. So it almost seems like, you know, we do need that, but then how do we think about this problem from like a policy standpoint, like, you know, chasing this sort of a target, which is continuously moving. There's obviously, you know, going back to, to the, what we spoke about with, the stuff with Hugging Face, but also just the closed source aspect of what ChatGPT is now like. We've got Bard coming through as well. Again, very closed up and controlled by a lot of these large corporations. Now, I've been thinking about this for a while and I'm trying to understand a little bit about what the future might look like between closed source and open source and who will triumph. You know, it, it goes back to the era of sort of Linux versus Microsoft, right? And there was this massive community around building an open source operating system. And I feel like there's little analogies that can be taken from that to what we're seeing today. How do you see the the landscape changing when it comes to the sort of the closed source solutions we know of today that are super popular versus the emerging ones that are now being developed open source that can be developed on a Raspberry Pi that are now starting to really understand. And they, I guess these developers have access to these, these resources. They can even train their own models. You know, is there one that's going to triumph over the other? Yeah, there, is there going to be coexistence between closed source and open source AI models? How do you see this uh, changing over the next few years? Yes, um, I think it's hard to predict over the next few years, but I can maybe predict over the next one year or over the next few months, which I think I see them as coexisting. Uh, and that's mainly because I think a lot of these bigger models are more like general capability model, right? And so they're more sort of like able to like do very well on a lot of tasks. But a lot of people don't need these huge models for their use cases, which are very narrow and very specific. And so what they, all they need is that I want them to be able to like 
like, you know, be a scheduler or like, you know, be able to write emails are like, you know, very specific use cases. Um, and you don't need like a use, it would be like a, you know, yeah, it would be an overkill to like deploy GPD-4 for that, right? Um, and so there's definitely an appetite for much smaller open source models that people can like just fine tune on their, you know, data or like their use cases and use them. And like you said, like with all the technology on like, you know, parameter efficient fine tuning or LoRa and all these, like you can fine tune them on your laptops. Like you don't even need probably GPUs and you don't need access to the cloud for that. And so, you know, now they are on our, our phones, like these large language models. And so I think with the, and that is all because of open sourcing models, like, you know, the research and innovation has accelerated and made so much progress that now we have this technology available on such smaller scale and be able to perform at the level of much on some of these very big models. Yeah, and that and that eventually ties back into sort of the whole regulatory side of things. Is if everyone is has now the capability of developing their own models, and to them it's probably closed, and they can sort of do things that are uh, very specific and niche. Then they could potentially sell those models and and monetize them, and you know for both positive and negative. Uh, purposes so it'll be interesting to see exactly what this space will look like at least you know in the next year or so because it's changing so quickly and 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 changing so fast it's one it's hard to keep up but it too it's 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 exciting but also concerning at the same time are you are you concerned at all about um you know the sort of the prospect of certain bad things happening you know or do you want to continue to double down and and go as fast as possible and and see what happens um I mean, it does definitely bother me that, you know, I mean, and I think that is kind of expected that there might be some of these moments in the next year or so where, you know, we suddenly realize that, oh, this is not at all what we expected this to be. And it could be like learning moments. And I think that has happened a lot, like, you know, as technology has evolved, like, you know, and in general in humanity over the years, like, you know, people realize, uh, you know, something uh, that they deploy, they realize that, oh, it doesn't work this way. And then, you know, you change, you pivot. And so I think like knowing like when to pivot, when to like, you know, when to or, like when to keep going, I think is kind of essentially the key. But yeah, I do. I think so far, I, I don't see like an existential risk uh, with these large language models. Uh, but I do foresee that there would definitely be like times in the coming months or coming year or so where they would be like, oh God, like we did not expect this to happen with a language model. And, you know, this is something that we should have, you know, Maybe we should basically like, you know, make, you know, put a guardrail for this or like, you know, double down on this and see how we can fix this. Um, but, and what that would be is something that is unknown at this point. Let's quickly just uh, finalize, finally talk about maybe AGI just very, very quickly. Maybe explain again, what is AGI and when do you think we can reach AGI? <laughs> So AGI stands for like artificial general intelligence. Um, it's basically like being able to like, you know, do a lot of tasks like, you know, like humans do at, um, or like much better than humans, like, you know, at like a super intelligence level. Um, I would say like, I don't, think we have AGI right now, although we are seeing sparks of AGI with GPT-4 in the sense that um, it is able to like do really well at a lot of these tasks, learn and transfer from like, you know, what it has learned from a task to a, like a new task. Um, and I think a lot of these point to 
a model that is like generally capable of doing a lot of these different tasks without being trained to like do any of these tasks in specific uh, in particular um and so uh, but i would i like you know it definitely had lacks a lot of these things and like you know common sense reasoning again like a lot of people have evaluated and i would recommend the agent choice ted talk on this and she gives like very concrete examples of how gpt4 fails on common sense still um and then there's also like this question on like you know people have can like you know write a proof for theorems like you know probably uh, uh, gpt4 still can't do it it is not able to even backtrack and that is kind of one of the things that i'm like you're really looking forward to like the next generation of language models to like when they plan something they take some actions and then they realize that oh this is not the right thing they are not able to backtrack when you generate something and you keep generating it like you're not able to like backtrack and figure out that oh this is not at all what um like how this conversation should be going um so these are some things that i would say like you know is still lacking that a human can very easily do yeah that notion of like going down and, and having this decision tree and then saying, okay, if this doesn't work out, then okay, maybe I'm going down the wrong path and I need to back up and then figure something else out. I think that's a hu very human trait to have, but eventually I, I truly believe this will be something that, that GPT-X in the future will be able to, to solve. Maybe let's quickly switch gears before we sort of uh, find, find, uh, wrap everything up here. I know that we spoke about a bit of your background into sort of getting to AI. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this. They're going to be AI enthusiasts. They're going to be engineers. They're going to be people who are out of college, maybe in high school, and they're excited about what they're seeing, right? They want to, they want to get involved, but they don't know how to start. And they're seeing they're using ChatGPT. They think it's awesome. They're trying to use all of these tools, and they it's helping them in in the best way that they can. But they want to contribute to the um, to what this could potentially be in the future. What advice do you have for those people who are looking to get into AI and don't know where to start? And maybe we can sort of talk about you know what should they learn? You know what should have what what book should they read? What topic should they cover? Um, just to get them headed in the right direction. Yes, so I would say I think just going back to the foundations. Um, so looking at uh, you know statistical machine learning, I still have that book on like pattern recognition and machine learning. I highly recommend that. It goes from like the very basics, like very like the basics of math, algebra, and then all the way to like you know how does that help with like finding patterns and data. And so that's kind of like very basic building blocks of machine learning. Doesn't get into like neural networks and stuff, but still gives you like an idea. Yeah, of like you know why like data is important like you know how 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 machine learning helps with like finding patterns and data and so on um and then the next thing is to like you know learn about like back propagation which is again like you know the horsepower behind like you know how neural networks learn um then also like then talk like you know looking into transformers it would be like i think initially someone getting into ai it would be hard to read papers and make sense of it it took me a while to like read the transformers paper over and over like a few times just to like understand it completely so 
I like you know someone getting new into AI, I would ask like you know recommend them to like maybe look at blog posts. I know there are like a lot of blog posts that visualize the transformer, give like you know gifts about it, like how it like you know blog by blog how it works at each step. There are also like you know courses or tutorials online on doing that. Um, I think those are like you know extremely important. And now like with Hugging Face as well, like we have like a lot of these tutorials on like building your first model or like training your own model with the data sets that are available out there. So I think like after like building these foundation, training your model on like you start with a Jupyter notebook or a collab notebook and doing a, like I think very like get gets your sense of accomplishment, right? Like you build your first model, it's able to do this and like you get so and so accuracy. And that's and, and I know this because I've been like teaching course with Codeis and like you know I can see like you know when like these students like you know they finish a project they actually feel like oh wow like they accomplished even though it was just like maybe writing like three lines of code overall right like you know but just like a whole end to end seeing the thing going from nothing to like working and generating results is like you know gives you like a big sense of accomplishment that is the thing that keeps you pushing and I think once you have those things going like you know like basically have these check marks done for like smaller projects and that will keep motivating you and then go into like these bigger models as to like trying to understand like you know how what is GPT three or like what makes chat GPT so much better and friendlier compared to GPT and like this whole idea of like instruction tuning and reinforcement learning with human feedback. I think those are much like topics that go much more deeper into like uh, AI and like uh, yeah and large language models. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. And I would also add to that is, look, just get involved. Just try to immerse yourself in the community. There's always people talking about it. And it's so easy now to get started. You just need a laptop and you can really just start to explore. And again, you know, that that proverbial rabbit hole, you're just going to go down anyway. And But it's, it's, it's a fun rabbit hole uh, because you get to explore so many things and uh, you'll definitely learn so much. Um, from from all the information that you just explained. And I'll try to put all the, the links into the description below on, on papers and, and books that, that, that people can get their hands on. Let's uh, finish off with some quick questions on your part because I think it's always fun to learn a bit more about the guest, but also learn a bit more about what drives you as well. So uh, yeah, let's go with the first question. And the first question is, do you recommend any you know, one to two books uh, that you've read that really piqued your interest that, you know, you'll, you'd love to share uh, with the audience. It doesn't have to be about AI or anything like that, but anything that really gets you excited. Yeah, so I think one book I would recommend is this Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Um, it's about like, it. it's not really, it's not AI, but it's very interesting. It talks about like, you know, how people think and how we have like these two systems in us, like system one and system two. And recently I've seen people like compare those to GPT-4, which kind of is more like, you know, um, post talk much later. But I, I, I thought that was like very interesting. And when I actually read that, I'm like, oh, wow, like, yeah, now I'm like, and we'll be able to connect that as well. Next question is, how do you approach your day? And and I know everyone is kind of different. I know that I'm kind of structured. I know a few people who are sort of go with the flow. How do you approach your day, especially when you are working on something big and, and, and meaningful um, and you're sort of engrossed in the work? How do you make sure that you're on top of it and you know, you, you also can sort of balance that with you know, your personal life as well? How do you approach your day-to-day from that perspective? 
Yeah, so I would say I changed a lot since I became a mother. I'm a mom of two kids now. Um, and I have never been this productive ever before. And I think it's just because you realize that you have limited time by yourself. And, you know, any time that you're away from your kids is very precious. And so you're like, I'm laser focused. And I think that's really helpful. But also, like, you know, I just get a sense of accomplishment when I do like smaller tasks and finish them. So if I feel like, you know, for example, writing, like, you know, I'm going to start my day. And I feel like, you know, just writing this and like finishing off would be like, you know, just tick marking a check, you know, on my to do's would like, you know, and that gets me and it's still like 8.30 a.m. by I finish that. That gives me like a real sense of accomplishment. And so when I finish like say three tasks, I still 10 a.m. And I'm like, wow, OK, this is going great. Like this day is going so good so far, as opposed to like trying to debug something, which, you know, I probably spend already like a few hours. And so I think that is like, you know, one like that's one way I go about my day is to like, you know, try to finish a few tasks and like finish, see it to completion. Yeah, I always find like having a checklist and and having the feedback of like, oh, I was I, I can cross this out or I can tick it off is just such a nice dopamine hit. And you feel like, okay, that's enough momentum to continue in the next one and the next one. So you just continue to sort of reinforce that cycle, which is very cool. Uh, the third one is what do you do outside of work? Uh, I know that you have a family, um, young kids, but also I think that's also, to me, it's important to sometimes disconnect from work because it, it at the end of the day, it does help. How do you approach um, your lifestyle outside of work? I love biking and hiking and, you know, just going out, getting out there. I think like California is really great for this. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I uh, almost like every day or like every other day I've been like, you know, go for like bike rides, uh, get out there, like, you know, get some kind of like, you know, nature walk. And, you know, because I have kids and like, you know, I've, I've been really like listening to this podcast about like respectful parenting. Like that's kind of, that's the podcast that I listen to right now <laughs> is that, you know, like just like how, you know, it's very primitive. Like, you know, it's for us to like go back to our primitive roots. It's like really helpful. Like, you know, to, like, to be connected to where we came from and really helps with like our day to day. And like, you know, the sense of like, you know, um, like what what like what we are right now and i think that's very like very important to me very cool and and i agree and i'm i'm, I'm glad to hear that you're a biker um i'm a, i'm an avid cyclist myself so i hope that we can find the time when i'm back there to to sort of go for a, a nice bike ride and then finally is what's the best way for people to connect with you uh i would say linkedin or twitter and i'll put all of those links in the uh, the show notes as well so they can uh, reach out to you if they have uh, any, any uh, questions on, on whatever you're doing. So hopefully um, they'll they'll uh, be able to connect with you as well. Uh, other than that, thank you so much, Nazneen, for your time. I know that you're super busy and I really appreciate you, you coming on. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will get some really good value out of this conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Barry. Thank you everyone for tuning into this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.